Hey everyone, David J. Lore here, and I want to tell you about an event that's coming up real soon. On Friday, November 2nd, 2018, we're bringing the incomparable radio theater to the stage at Feinstein's 54 Below, Broadway's Supper Club in the heart of the theater district in Midtown Manhattan. We'll be featuring Dan Morin as The Fog, solving a musical murder mystery. And of course, we'll have a word from our sponsor, Chalk Full of Coffee. Say it with me now. The coffee with the extra special secret ingredient, more coffee. Best of all, we even have an original score. Because when you're in New York, you gotta have some songs. So come, have a drink, have some food, see the show, come say hi. It's a great venue. It's a small venue. It's a restored speakeasy under what used to be Studio 54. It's really nice. For tickets, go to 54below.com and search for the Incomparable Radio Theater, or just follow the link in the show notes. If you want to save $5 off the cover charge, use the code SNELL5. That's right, SNELL5. That's either Jason's Maroon 5 cover band or an elite special ops team. Heck, it could be both. So, the Incomparable Radio Theater, Feinstein's 54 Below, Friday, November 2nd at 9.30 p.m. I hope we see you there. The Incomparable, number 427, October 2018. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and in this episode, we are reconvening our book club to discuss two books released this very summer by Mary Robinette Kowal in the uh, Lady Astronaut series, The Faded Sky and the Calculating Stars. We will start before the spoiler horn talking about these books generally and why you should go read them, because you should. You really, really should. Uh, but And then afterward, we'll talk about them in a little more detail if you would like to run off and uh, and not hear more spoilers about them before uh, you go read them, which you should. Again, I advise you to do that. That's not a spoiler. I, I suspect people hope I say you should read them. I don't know what everybody else thinks. Let me introduce the other people who read it, and maybe they'll have different opinions. Who knows? We'll find out. Aline Sims is here. Hello. Hello. Read these books. Okay. You don't have to reveal your opinion now. You won't be shunned. <laughs> you can keep, you can hold it. It's all, it's all good. David J. Right. Lore is also here. Hello. Hello. I, I will say, um, as like 98% of our tastes tend to align. Yes, read these books. Okay. Kathy Campbell is also here. Hello. Hello. Read these books. Oh, my. Well, that puts a lot of pressure sitting in what is often a spot occupied by Scott McNulty, but not tonight. It's nearly literally, it is Marisa McClellan. Hello. Hi there. I also think you should read these books. Oh, look at this. Well, thanks to everybody for tuning in. <laughs> Goodbye. You get an hour of your life thanks, back. Thanks, guys. Have a good night. Hold uh, on. Okay, so so uh, Mary Robinette Kowal uh, is a fun writer. She's, I believe, won some awards before. I've read some of her books before. She has a whole series of uh, kind of magic, like uh, their fantasy historicals that are delightful. They um, are good. Uh, I love those books. I, I, yeah, she's she's a really good Ghost writer. Ghost Talkers is delightful. Uh, Ghost Talkers it I have good, bought, yep. but I have not read it yet. But I heard everybody likes that one too. I really recommend. By the way, in those in those uh, historicals, in every book, there's a character who appears at one point who is one of the Doctor Who's uh, as a cameo. And you, if you read carefully, you will you can play 
who which character is actually one of the doctors uh, who's who it's, oh, am- it's amazing have yeah, to read it's hilarious, it's hilarious. <laughs> just a little, you're not helping my just a little cameo she just drops in there and it's always a different doctor who in every in every book uh and it's oh. just described as a normal character and then they move on and then later you're like was that tom baker maybe it was <laughs> why why did they talk about the scarf anyway these are not those books these books are I'm going to try to explain the backstory here. So she wrote a, a novella or a novelette, or it might have even been a short story. It was a short story. It wasn't even that long. I think it was a short story. Called yeah. the, the Lady Astronaut of Mars. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is about a, an older woman who is on uh, on Mars and she is uh, living history and she's the one, like the first woman on Mars. And uh, it's a great short story and was very well received. And uh, Mary Robinette Kowal wanted to sort of started to imagine sort of what the backstory was and what the universe was. And I think you could argue she tries to shoehorn some stuff in. I think you could argue that there's some facts stated in that story that don't really align with these books, but that's fine because the books, the important thing is to make good books and not to create this kind of cohesive, complete lady astronaut universe. Um, And these books start way back in time from there. Um, and the idea here, and that's, and I'm going to say, I don't think it's really a spoiler because the idea with these books is you get the sense really from the beginning that the protagonist of these books is, is bound for greatness, that Elma York is going to be the lady astronaut of Mars, she's bound for greatness. That that this is not a story where halfway through she's like, and then I retired and was mm-hmm. and never right. went to outer space. <laughs> that is not a thing that is going to happen. But um, in these books, the, the, it's a basically a space race, sort of like the space race in the late fifties and through the sixties on our Earth. But this is told through. Uh, an alternate history, which is, I think, an interesting way of doing this. Now, we have friends, some of us, who have said they don't like alt history. And I think that this is an interesting question for this book, because it's more like a, a an alternate timeline. Like, the story, it, it's, it's almost like a book that was written in the past, and that the history didn't go the way that the book... Uh, said it would and so now it's now it seems different but it doesn't feel like it's one of those like well what if this happened it's not that kind of alternate history right and, mm-hmm. and it's mostly because what she wants to do is change the story up uh to get a different kind of space race a little bit so the idea here is that there's a um there's a uh, meteorite that uh, crashes to earth in the atlantic ocean and swamps the east coast and this is in the 50s and it is uh so it changes uh the course of American history and world history, this disaster. And also after the disaster, there's a real question about whether this might actually be a catastrophic ecological event that is going to raise temperatures worldwide and potentially lead to a runaway greenhouse that will kill everybody on earth, which creates a new reason for a space race to happen. And a little bit earlier in a different location, it's in Kansas. And, uh, and that is where this all happens. But that all said, it feels very much like a period piece about the space race. It's just not, you know, rather than saying, here's a different way our space race could have gone. She puts, she hit, sets uh, history off course just enough that she can just tell a story that she wants to tell, which I thought was effective. I don't know if any of you have thoughts about like the, the 
initial because the meteor thing is this is where um the calculating stars which is the first of these two books uh that's where it starts uh how'd you feel about that that idea that you're immediately taken into an alternate history of the space race well since 98 percent of our opinions tend to anyway read the books <laughs> i really liked it i don't and i'm not someone who normally likes alt history there's there is a robert heinlein book that gets something like 500 pages in and suddenly there's one detail that changes and you realize oh we're in an alternate timeline and it pissed me off and and i just i don't like that i don't like the surprise if i if i know that it's going to be that going in i'm okay but i usually don't bother with them anyway it's like i want to do something else and i i just fell in love with these i fell in love with the original story which is why i started reading these so as i sit here in my liftoff hoodie excellent branding um, I, good job <laughs> yes yes uh i am a huge fan of space and space themed things and i really liked that they kept a lot of er, that not they she kept similar bits of the history um, so it wasn't a completely like aliens come onto the earth and take over type of an alternate history. Like right. there were little bits and pieces in the story that were consistent with our timeline um, that really helped that authenticity almost. So it didn't feel like one of those, oh, what if, you know, Abraham Lincoln didn't get shot or whatever. I really think that you hit the nail on the head, Jason, when you said that it's not so much an alternate history, but... um a divergent timeline from the one we have lived, because I think that it's, you know, it's simply an event that set humanity on a different course. And so then the book is kind of just picking up. So it feels very much like if this had happened, perhaps this is the the course we would have all experienced. Um, and it's interesting as someone who's not interested in space as much, how compelling these books were for me, because I don't think, you know, I feel like you shouldn't look at these books and think, well, I need to be interested in space to be engaged by them. They are, it's a really compelling story. And, you know, I, I just thought that, yes, it is a story of the space race and it's really interesting. And, you know, speaking of the history, I also like how she opens every chapter with a news report. And if you read the historical notes at the back of the book, she says these are, she didn't make those up. They are, you know, borrowed from history. She just tweaked them in places where they needed to agree with her timeline. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely true. And and I should say, yes, it is about a space race, but it is about, um, it is about uh, this woman, Elma York, and how she's trying to navigate her world. She is put. She is. Everybody is a trauma survivor here because of all the people who died on the East Coast at the beginning of this story. So everybody's kind of dealing with that fallout, and and there are uh, there are politics involved. There is uh, th- th- this book. So one of this. One of the things that this book is not afraid to engage with, and I think it's actually one of the reasons why it's set when it is in the late 50s, is this book, first off, we talk about how this is about uh, essentially the first woman astronaut. This book engages with the sexism of the era. It engages with, and Elma is a, uh, is a PhD. She's basically a math genius. Um, she's she's uh, very successful in academically and is incredibly uh, skilled but as we know from there was just that netflix documentary about the women who basically emulated the 
physical tests on the men who were applying to be astronauts for the Mercury program, but NASA was not interested in women as astronauts. Um, that that is what's going on here. So she uh, she is trying to navigate the sexism of the period, and the book is also not this first book not at all afraid of engaging fundamentally with the racism of the period in America because and and our character who is a a white lady although she is a she is a Jewish southerner it's a very specific and I kind of enjoy that because <laughs> that is not a character type that usually gets carted out even though there are absolutely uh, Jewish people in the South, you don't usually see those as main characters in books. So that was kind of fun. But she steps in it. She steps in it with a group of black aviators in uh, the Midwest that she thinks she's helping. And they totally call her on it. And the book the book lets the character step in it and lets the character learn something about how she made some assumptions. I, and, and so as a period piece, it, even though it's a parallel timeline or whatever, it really, it really is not afraid. It, it, it in fact, it is uh, taking that stuff on directly. One of the things that originally pulled me into the story is that years and years ago, I heard a story on the radio about that group of of lady astronauts and how this was, you know, they were trying to get this into NASA. They were trying to get that approved. And I have several books because I thought there's a play in that. Now it turns out. There already is a play mm. in that. But I wound up reading all the research before I found out there was a play about it. It's apparently not a very good play. But Well, you it, got an opening right there then. Right. <laughs> and it was just, it's such a fascinating idea. And so it was really, I, I love, and, and certainly in the historical notes in the back of the books, she cites all the books that I have sitting on my shelf right here. And I was like, oh, I actually know something about this. Cool. And she she does a really good job. Uh, portraying enough of the reality of it to then spin her story out. Aline, how'd you feel about the the way she engages with the the issues of the period? It was incredibly relatable to me, even in, you know, 50 years on. As a person who is kind of marginalized on a couple of different axes, who also tries to help people who are marginalized in different ways, like Elma is, you know, Southern Jewish woman and, you know, my stuff, but like, I try, um, I try to help. And I didn't even mention the fact that she also has a mental health issue that she's dealing yep. with and she's dealing mm-hmm. with the stigma right. of that. So that's yet another way that this book is engaging. Sorry to interrupt, but I, I, I left that one out. That is also yeah, a key gonna, part of it. I Elma. was going to bring it up. Yeah. Because, um, because I do that, I step in it, I try to help and I step in it and it's like, I, I act defensively, Elma acts defensively. And then I'm like, oh yeah, no, you're right. And then trying to rectify that. Um, like I've been through all of that and I was like, yeah, I got you. Like I know exactly what's happening here. And also the anxiety thing is somebody who has anxiety and who um, probably should be medicated for it, but isn't like I relate to a lot of what she does, a lot of what Elma experiences, like um, going into interviews, she she gets sick and she has coping mechanisms. When I started podcasting, I used to like panic before every podcast I did. And I would like go brush my teeth and, you know, like people could smell my breath. I don't know. Like, but I really, I relate so much to Elma because, um, a lot of the things that are talked about in this book, like the racism, the sexism, the anxiety, the stigma to having uh, mental health, um, issues, the stigma of being medicated for mental health issues, issues, all of that kind of stuff is still relevant now. And um, I, I think it makes it incredibly 
relatable and um it's also kind of a little bit sad that we're still dealing with a lot of this crap now yeah it's it's i agree a hundred percent on how sad it is that it's still so relatable that all of these pieces are so solid in society today that you can see yourself in something that supposedly took place you know decades ago just to follow up on that too um speaking of sort of all of the different ways that um this book is relatable i feel like there are entry points of relatability for just about everyone, um, which I really appreciate. So like I am Jewish and there are not books with Jewish main characters unless it is a Jewish specific book. And so even just that, it was like I had this little moment of celebration as I was reading it because it gave me this connection point, you know, and they're just the cast become the cast of characters in the book becomes so diverse and there are um, people dealing with different issues. So, um, She's just done such an amazing job of creating a book where there are entry points for so many different people, which is unusual, I feel like. Yeah, it it is. And, you know, the best science fiction is talking about modern issues regardless. And this is funny because it's talking about modern issues in the uh, context of the past and not the future. But really, you know, if if those issues weren't relevant today, why would you write about them? She she's absolutely uh, wants these to be there and see our. Uh, our main character navigate this and and she has so one of the things that i noticed when i was reading this and i mentioned this in our i should mention as a sidebar we have a new podcast in the incomparable network called recently read where literally um we finish a book and and somebody anybody who wants to on the network can like record a little thing for five minutes where they talk about the book that they just read that's all it is and i did one about the calculating stars and one of my observations in it is I, I, because we're following Elma, I kept getting so frustrated because she wants to be involved in this project of, of the space race and building these rockets and testing them and sending people into space. She wants to be involved. Her husband is involved. He's a very senior person in this project, but she wants to be involved too. She's certainly qualified and she is constantly shut out. And the book, the book, because we stay with her at all times, there are so many points in this book where her husband goes away behind closed doors where decisions are made and she doesn't know what's happening there. And then she has to deal with the fallout of whatever those decisions are. And so I pointed out in my recently read post about this, how I thought that was really effective in showing how women are excluded from so many of the decision-making points in and the, it was a very effective way of showing that. And apparently Mary Robinette Kowal listened to that podcast and she said, I had never really thought about that because I'm a woman and this is just how I portray it. And I was like, well, okay, I'm a man. And I noticed that I was not allowed in the room, right? Because mm-hmm. Elma's not allowed in the room. And I thought that was really, uh, I mean, it's, just, it's so good. I, I, we're talking about all these issues, but like it's written, this book is written so humanely, like, you care about the main character. You care about all the characters are are richly portrayed, even the mm-hmm. jerks. Even the yeah. jerks, yeah. Right. Yes, right. yes. Right there is there is even even the general who's sort of like the cigar chomping general. Even even that guy has nuance to him, which is kind of remarkable. And and there is an astronaut who is a golden boy astronaut who is awful to her. And uh, through a, through both of these books. Uh, he is you. You might not have to like him, but you can understand him. I yes. think, especially in the second book. Like the first book, you're like, yeah. okay, he's mostly just a jerk, 
And then in the second book, he becomes, you get to know him a little bit better. Spoilers for the second book, he is in it. Yes. Um, but you get to know him a little bit better. And it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of, what happened previously makes sense. Like, I don't agree with you. I think you're a jerk, but I kind of like you too. I don't know. Yeah. I felt like he was redeemed in some way, even though he still was prickly. You get some understanding. Yeah. Yes. My friends, can I tell you about Pingdom? I need to tell you about Pingdom because while you've been listening to the incomparable, how would you know if your website, the thing that matters most to you in the world, quite possibly, was down. I know this is, it's it's spooky. It's October. What a horror story I'm telling. Websites go down. They break all the time. Worse, sometimes they break silently. What if your website was up, but when customers click the buy now button, it's broken? That would be terrible. You might like stumble across it through luck. So you're having some good luck to go with your bad luck. But really... Uh, This is not a system. You need a system. You need something to tell you that every piece of your website is running smoothly. This brings me back to Pingdom. Why you need Pingdom. Pingdom will let you know the moment your site goes down. And they'll let you know in whatever way works for you the best. They're smart, too. They get the information needed to solve the issue sent to whoever needs it. So if you've got different people in charge of different parts of the website, they can be targeted with the ping when something goes wrong wrong that could be one person it could be a whole group it could be everybody on the team pingdom is dedicated to making the web faster and more reliable they have 70 global test servers that are emulating visits to your site checking its availability as often as every minute all you need to do to get started is the url of your website which i bet you know off the top of your head because it's super important to you don't risk being the last person to know that your site is broken you should be the first person and you should get it fixed before anyone else even notices so start monitoring your site today by going to pingdom.com slash snell that's p-i-n-g-d-o-m.com slash snell my last name you'll get a 14-day free trial no credit card required. Try it for 14 days. Hopefully nothing breaks on your site in 14 days. But if it does, you'll get to see how well Pingdom works. And when you sign up for Pingdom, use my last name as the code Snell at checkout. You'll get 30% off your first invoice. Thank you, Pingdom, for keeping all the websites online and for supporting the incomparable. I, I really like how how sm- the the word that I keep coming to to describe the writing style is smooth. Mm-hmm. It just flows so well that I couldn't stop reading. Uh, even I, I finished the second book at like 2 a.m. And I'm someone that goes to bed like eight or nine. Uh, wow. I just, I, I'm really good at putting down a book and these I could not put down. And it, it just flowed like butter. It was great. There are very few books, you know, people always say, oh, it's unputdownable. And I've been able to put down every book I was told was unputdownable. These are books I didn't want to put down. I mean, I did put them down when I had to, but I didn't want to. That's very rare. I had this thing with the first book where um, I want, it was so good. And that smoothness, I totally understand what you're saying, Kathy. And it was so good. But I wanted it to last. So I had like these little internal wars where I was like, okay, I need to stop. (laughs) I managed to make it last a week. I somehow I managed to make it last a week. But the second book, I was like, no, I just, I just have to read it. And I think I read it in like a day and a half. Like I didn't do any work. I just read 
and you know did my household stuff or whatever but it it was just so good it's so compelling it's so well written there's never a point where i felt like um you know even with that that character with parker it was like i don't like you i don't agree with you but i don't disagree with the way you were written and so often yeah. those mm. adversarial relationships i'm like i don't believe the way this is playing out i don't right. believe the way this was done but everything felt really believable and really human to me and that's incredibly rare i think at least it is for yeah. me yeah i i could see real people in him in a way that is it it definitely happens in other books but this one was so it was a i can't even i can't even think of the right word but like it was that realness of the character that just let it just oh yeah this is the bad guy but you're not like oh this is the bad guy type of yeah. Right, he's not twirling his mustache or anything i think there's an expectation that in a book in a story like this what you're gonna get from that character is this clash of he's the military man he's the astronaut he's in the you know no girls allowed clubhouse and she is threatening her presence threatens him her presence as an intelligent scientist threatens him because he's a fighter pilot basically he's a test pilot uh her presence as a potential astronaut threatens him like she's not part of the club she doesn't belong so you could see it going that way and that's not quite right. Like they, the their right. their friction has to do with uh, there's some trust and the trust issues. Like it's 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 just much more robust. And as it goes, and she says things to him that. Um, he reacts badly to some of which we don't understand until the second book why we just know that he reacts badly to them and we don't really understand his behavior but it's like it's a much more robust perform or not performance but portrayal of a character than if it was literally just like hey we don't want any girls here get out like that that would be very stock you know antagonist kind of guy for her to overcome or bypass or prove herself to or whatever and that's not it in fact I, I at, at several points you see that parker is a professional like he has a level of professionalism even when he is being a jerk to her he like they'd go out they do like a test flight and like they're they're there he's being a jerk but he's also like a professional who want he's he's not trying to set her up or create a scandal or something like that he knows that you know he has some respect for her even though he really doesn't like her that 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 kind of uh roundness in a character who's just your antagonist is super rare i think one one of the details i loved that came out in the second book really uh one of the things that he's threatened by is that she knows a language that he doesn't he he hasn't mastered yiddish and so he comes over and he's trying to get her to explain this. that's his superpower right is that he's right. a, he's really good at picking right. up languages and he's yeah. a polyglot and so she's trying to explain this and so right there that's an interesting detail but then the fact that she finds herself getting more tense about him questioning her about yiddish than about an actual emergency that happens a few pages later that's an interesting detail about her and and these are just these are really well thought out characters and and everything is laid everything is laid out in the first book you know there's nothing that you that you go wait that isn't that doesn't connect 
it's it's just it's really nicely layered. Another thing that I think this book is clever about is uh, is the politics of it, not just the mm-hmm. politics of this you know broken United States where the capital is in Kansas and the spaceport is in Kansas, and this is like they or maybe the capital's in Missouri, but it's it, you know it, it's it's a different United States. Uh, and so that's different. And then you, th- she is able to create you know, kind of a controversy about like, should we really be funding the space pro- program? There are there are climate change denialists who don't believe that that they're going to need to flee the Earth or humanity is going to die out. That's in there. But I also think like the internal politics of an organization like the space program, where she becomes famous, uh, she goes on Mister Wizard. She becomes the lady mm-hmm. astronaut, even though they don't have women astronauts. She gets that name and she becomes famous and it becomes like a super asset for the space program. But also it makes her kind of politically charged and threatening in a different way because she's like well known. But that also means that lots of people, including other women, don't believe she is worthy because she's too famous and she has to navigate that. Plus the fact that she's got this really brutal social anxiety that... uh is every time she makes a public appearance basically strikes her so i I think that's also interesting where you get this this uh character who is trying to navigate all of that and she has a hard time right she doesn't always make the right choices um even though we know she's going to end up probably in a good place i like the use of mr wizard too an actual Mm -hmm. it's not a fake character it's it's literally mr wizard (laughs) she goes to chicago and is on his show his father was Mr. Wizard. Call him Don. <laughs> His father was Dr. Wizard, but that was yeah. really... I, I do like it. that uh, she also knew him during the war, right? It's not just that he's right. randomly picked her out of nowhere or picked her out of this thing. They actually know one another. And, and that actually is one of the historic things that uh, David mentioned, all the, the research that she does here, which is there, there was a whole flying corps of women in World War II mm-hmm. when the men were all sent overseas to fight. The women were doing the logistics of flying the planes like to uh, the theater of war um, and and other kind of logistics stuff. But there were women flying uh, for the first time in for the for the u.s in that era and of course at the end of that era what they did was the men came back home and said okay ladies we don't need you anymore and that was Mm. the group that actually was the the, uh the uh mercury uh alternate mercury seven uh training group they were largely made up of those aviators and those are the characters in this book they are they are those aviators there there are a lot of the the real ones are mentioned in passing in certain things or referred to as, you know, doing something somewhere else. Um, it's, it's very nice. Yeah. It's, it's all, it's all good. And there are, you know, there, there, the space part is fun too. There are, there are accidents and things. There's, there's very, there's fifties tech, which is always fun. Like, uh, mm, telephones dials and, and, and yeah. And, and, and people miss each other cause like the communication system's kind of broken. And even when it works, it's, it's 1950s communication system. So, um, I mean, it's yeah. it's kind of an awkward description of it because I know everyone wants to to try and come up with a word like steampunk, and they're trying to call it punch card punk, <laughs> which is both really awkward, but that's also very spot on. That's what it is. Yeah. What if what? How do you send somebody to space in 1950? You know, 1955 instead of yeah. 1965, and the answer is it would be more primitive, or they would get. <laughs> better faster there's also a hidden figures angle here too because that is also something that kind of gets mentioned uh in passing uh hidden figures if you haven't seen it great movie about the computers who worked in the space program back when computers were people and mostly women 
who are really good at math. And that is also what our main character is. She is a computer in the sense that her she's a she's brilliant at math. But there's a whole group of brilliant women who are keeping the space program going by figuring out the, you know, the trajectories of the rockets and how much fuel they have to use and all of those sorts of things. And they're all represented in this book, too. Anything else that people want to mention? I, I should probably fire off the spoiler horn at this or in a moment, at least to talk about the second book, because that does reveal maybe a little bit more than what we've said about the first book. But is there anything that all of you might want to mention about Calculating Stars that, that you'd yes. like to get out now? Please do. So read the go go buy the books mm-hmm. just buy them yes we but all also, agree unanimous <laughs> also also get the audiobooks um so mm. this is i i sung i i invested a lot of money into these so <laughs> i um i went to my did you invest books. in these or is this I did some sort of pyramid scheme happening yes it is oh, no. yes it is this <laughs> is my <laughs> pyramid scheme the, the, third, the third book is the ponzi scheme <laughs> so um so i went to the bookstore like the day the calculating stars was released and was just wandering and decided to get it um you know hadn't heard anything about it other than it existed um so i got it you know read it um waited very impatiently for the second one to come out like five weeks later. I don't know what I would have done if it had been like a year and a half. So so five weeks later, the second one comes out. I'm very excited. Went the day it was released. Also bought it. And then when we set up the recording, decided when we were going to record this episode, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and buy the audiobooks too. So I got the audiobooks. But the thing about them is that Mary Robinette Kowal reads them. Hmm. And um, if you listen to past book club episodes and you listen to our Nebula episode for this year, for 2018, you will know that the only thing I found redeemable about the book Amberlow was Mary Robinette Kowal's reading of it. She is amazing and she is amazing in these books it's not just her reading the words on the page she emotes when she gets to an emotional part her voice quivers um she is i mean she is an an amazing author but she is also a talented you know she's a puppeteer Um, she does a lot of things and she is training in radio theater yeah yeah shocking yeah so so um, if you are at all an audiobook person, do not hesitate to listen to these because they are, she is just astoundingly good and these books are astoundingly good and it's totally and completely worth the time investment. That's all. I have, I have one other thing to say, which is, um, so Elma is married. Her husband is a senior person in the space program and also, uh, you know, also a PhD. There's Dr. and Dr. York. Um, I just wanted to say that this book does a good job of explaining why they, why she's attracted to him, why they have a relationship. And it, it does not, it is not afraid of saying, yes, they have a healthy sexual relationship in addition to their marriage, their, their marriage. It's all parts. There are, I'm just saying there are a lot of rocket metaphors that happen. There are a lot of rocket <laughs> metaphors, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're good to after, after a while, I was like, these two, these are two people who work on the space program. I think that they're just kind of leaning into their, uh, I, mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I kind of went with it, but it, there were a lot of rocket metaphors. There were a lot of, you know, yes. uh, on the launch pad kind of countdown. There was a lot of those, but it, 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 I like that it was a portrayal of a, a, a an entire 
uh, marriage, like the the whole part. It's not like their only their only relationship in the book is when they're dealing with strategy about how to approach the next launch. No, that's right. not no. Mm-mm. No, she worries about she worries about um, food. And there's a lot of cooking in here too, which which goes back to uh, you know Marisa mentioning that she's Jewish. There, there's definitely that sort of like there's cult, there's culture clashes of like she wants to make this thing that her her uh, her grandmother made that is a traditional Jewish dish, and the the uh, the black women she knows are making their dishes, and like who's cooking for who at various points. I love how all much that bacon too. grease well, is there. And the difficulty yeah. of keeping co- the difficulty of keeping kosher. Keeping kosher. Right. Yeah. Especially in well, space. Yeah. And she's not even really trying to keep kosher. She's just trying not to eat pork. Yeah. Um, and True. so and even that is challenging, particularly in the 50s when, you know, in differences Kansas City around. Or wherever yeah, they exactly. Are, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, as someone who has a mother who doesn't eat pork, like I was like, oh, yeah, I know those, you know, I know that feeling. I, I, that, have, like, a, I have a wife who is Jewish and does not eat yeah. pork, although they're not related. But they, they those are both facts. <laughs> and so I, I got to I, I read yeah. into that, too. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it just felt so familiar. And just kind of like that being and, you know, she also mentions how during the war, that wasn't something that she really observed because at that time, you know, you had to eat what you could get. And so um, acknowledging when and where she kind of compromises on her religion was an interesting thing right. that comes up and as well. And some social things too, where she's like, okay, this, I mean, I, and I've definitely seen my wife experience this where, where there are moments where you're like, look, I, I'm not going to ask, like, I just have to, or, or, you know, and you're like, I just, you know, yeah, I just have to go with it because I can't, I can't spit it out and say, oh no, I, you can't serve this to me. I'm just going to have to go with it, and even though I'm, I, I don't want to, that's a thing that happens sometimes. I need to tell you about a sponsor now, and you know, I used to work in an office. I used to be a manager. I used to manage a group of more than fifty people before I left, and now I sit in my garage and I don't manage anybody, and that's fine too. But you may manage people. And you know what one of the frustrating things about managing people is? It's hiring people. It's finding people. People leave. People go elsewhere. I know. I don't know what they're thinking, but they do. And then you need to find a replacement. You need to find good people. Or maybe you're expanding. You need to find good people. Here's a website that solves this problem, and it is our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes are not helpful. I love getting that resume for my job in San Francisco, and it's, I will not move from my home in Minnesota. It's like, why do I have this resume? Why? Zip Recruiter will take care of it because it is smart. It's smart enough to give you only what you need. So go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Snell, my last name right now, and find out more. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't wait for the candidates to find you. It finds them for you. It's got powerful ma- matching technology. The way this works is it scans the thousands of resumes in its database. It finds people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. So you're going to get some qualified, motivated candidates fast. Not just unqualified, motivated candidates. Those people are very motivated, but ZipRecruiter is not going to talk to them. They're going to talk to the people who are qualified. You don't have to sort through as many incompatible resumes. You don't have to wait around hoping that a good candidate will eventually apply. We've had this position open for three weeks. We just don't have any good resumes yet. Oh, it's so frustrating. ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S., and this rating has come from over a thousand reviews of hiring sites on Trustpilot. Listeners of The Incomparable, try ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash Snell. Now, friends, if you aren't actually hiring somebody, do not use ZipRecruiter. 
because that would be a really cruel prank to play on somebody. Do not do that. But if you are hiring, you should use ZipRecruiter. And here's how you do it. Go to your uh, computer, go to the web browser, open it up, click in the little uh, address field there and type Z-I-P-R-E-C-R-U-I-T-E-R.com slash S-N-E-L-L and then press return. And guess what will happen? You'll be on ZipRecruiter's site and you'll find out ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Thank you, ZipRecruiter, for their support of the incomparable. Okay, I'm going to fire off the spoiler horn. Uh, again, everybody has agreed unanimously that you should read these books. But before I give away uh, what the second book is about, because there is a second book, and yes, a couple of the characters we've mentioned are in it, as are maybe others, uh, I'm not going to tell you until uh, you pass through the spoiler horn. So just go get The Calculating Stars and uh, then get the... And it's, a, it's self-contained, I'll say that too. It has an ending. You could tell that there's going to be more to come, but it is a satisfying ending, I felt. And then and the second book is set a bit a bit later, I would say, and is also a satisfying standalone book. There will be b- more books in this universe and in this series, but uh, you aren't being sold part of a story. You will get a whole story if you read The Calculating Stars, and you'll enjoy it. And then you will want to read The Faded Sky, not because you have to, but because you want to. So, so hang on, hang on. Is this book about going to space? <sighs> I'm just, I just, <laughs> so I'm in, checking. In the faded sky, uh, they go to Mars. <laughs> that happens in the faded oh, right. sky. Uh, they, in fact, the, it starts with them on the moon. The, the, the calculating stars ends with them going into space, right? Isn't that how yes. that ends? Yeah, it's, they're yeah. about to go. They're about to it's go. Um, they've, people have gone multiple times, but it's Elma's it's first her flight. First. And then yeah. in, in Faded Sky, she's like on the moon at a moon base. And she's she's like a pilot who's going back and forth and stuff like that. She's a bus driver. She is. She is. It's not, it's not glamorous what she's doing, but it's space. And that's that's something. Uh, but in that in this book, yeah, it is it is uh, they're getting ready to do to go to Mars because that's all always been part of the plan. And she's not on the mission, and then she's on the mission, and that causes huge fallout. We do learn the story behind why Parker is a miserable sob, which is well partially he's also just kind of a prickly pear but it is partially because um his wife who has been a mysterious figure never ask him about his wife and all of that he reveals she has polio and is in an iron lung and that is uh that has been a huge strain on uh on his life and that it, it very much upsets him um he's still not a you know he's not a nice guy but you understand him a little bit better and in this book where they are on this mission to Mars and there is a, a lot of, uh, there are a lot of travails on the way there. Um, it, uh, he is a professional. Like he, he, you see him as a professional. He, he, him being a jerk is not him being bad at his job. Most of the time. I, I really, I really identified with him as a caregiver and, you know, concern for your spouse and partner and how that affects your day-to-day life. Um, and so when that was revealed, I was just like, oh, that it was yeah. I, it just hit me. Like, and I think that may have been part of why I could not put this book down just cause like, okay, I'm going to go, we're, we're going all in. Um, but it made you realize 
how being a jerk, yes, it affects you, but it's still being a jerk is a choice and how you like react to things. Mm -hmm. But also how it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not good at what you're doing. And the way that he interacts with um, the crew when they're going to Mars and like becomes in charge just like and owns his mistakes too. So like he's jerk, but not in ways that doesn't let him do his job very well. He's personally, I don't even prickly. He's just not a great like personal person, but he's a person that you want to work with because there was never any point where there was doubt about what his like his motivation for the crew was or whether he would come through or um if he was even listening or considering opinions like he was always doing that whether i feel like he made the right choice or whether the book um uh i guess consequences of events showed that he didn't make the right choice right like he he always listened he always owned his mistakes um like the consummate professional right and yeah um, that's what i was gonna I, say I really, is he's got this relentless competence he is yeah. so competent that you know he can he can be a jerk basically because he's incredibly competent that that like that's how he gets away with having a bad personality is that he's really yeah. good at everything else you know by the end of book two i wasn't certain he actually was a jerk um he was a jerk to elma in part because so the setup for the reason they have this bad relationship is that during the war she had him court-martialed because he was sexually harassing women um and so he holds this grudge against her and but as you go further and further it seems like he's mostly a jerk to her um, in part because she, I mean, first in revenge, but then also because she seems to keep encountering him in really vulnerable states. And so he, his, it's almost like he has been too vulnerable with her at times, not out of any choice of his, but just like what she walked in on or, you know, as she learns more about him. And so it's like he's angry with her then he becomes vulnerable with her and then finally they start to trust one another and then you see that maybe he's not a jerk i mean he might be sexist but definitely yeah 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 but and yeah, there's but, no might about him. yeah so he's definitely sexist but i don't actually know that but he gets along with almost everyone except her so, like, there's this element of he has been vulnerable with her in a way that he didn't want to be that was uh, happened out against sort of his will, or not by his choosing, that has left him feeling sort of threatened or totally without stable footing with her. As our viewpoint character, it's funny, like, I, I call him a jerk because he's a jerk to her and mm -hmm. we yeah. see what she sees. And so we see you're right. He, it, he is a jerk to her more than he is to other people. He's not necessarily a bad, even bad leader or a bad communicator. Some of that is bad luck. I do love the fact, as you alluded to there, that by the end of the second book, like they have each other's backs, even when they yeah. don't necessarily understand or like each other. They trust each other. 
to be competent. And that I, I really kind of love that, that like he doesn't he has lots of issues with her. And, and basically he says kind of that he doesn't like her, but he trusts her. He knows she knows what she's doing and she's going to do a good job. And she knows that he is likewise a competent person. And that's a fascinating relationship too. like imagine that you work with somebody you don't like, but you do it because they're good at their job. You're good at your job and you can you can do that. Like that's, there's, oh, uh, I yeah. can more than imagine. I can yeah. remember, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, right, right. But but oh, to have that relationship though, where yes. where you don't get along, but you can work well together, and both sides know that that's fine as long as everybody does their job, and we have a job to do. And here it's like we're going to Mars, and lives are at stake, and there's like real stakes in that. But they they have that they have that trust anyway. I, I think that's really interesting. Obviously, there are a couple of spectacular uh, set pieces in this book that involve people dying. Before we get to that, I just I, I wanted to say that uh, ability to trust people that you don't like is very true to the actual history of the space program. They didn't all. They weren't all buddies, right? But they all they all had to tr- had to have confidence in one another, right? right? If you're in that right. situation, you have to have confidence in the other people to do their job, even if they don't get along. Which they, uh, yeah, like a lot of them did not get along. But you had to have that confidence, and so there was like there's who they are as a person, and then there's can I trust them with my life? And if you pass the can I trust you with my life test, well, let's you know we won't we'll we'll deal with the rest of it. And that, right. that's definitely the, their relationship. Um, the bag. The okay. bag. So, yeah. so a character dies, and there's a whole thing of, well, how are we going to deal with this? And they're like, well, we have a procedure for this, which is you put their body in a bag, and you put it out in space for a while or in vacuum. You freeze-dry it. And it freeze-dries it, and then you shake the bag until they're powder. Which I believe Ugh. she says is like an actual procedure that has been like she did some research on like what the procedure is for how you deal with a dead body in a situation like this. But what I love about it is it's the procedure is so NASA. It's like, this is what you do. Okay, we'll do that. And they do it. And as somebody who has has had, I have never had to dispose of a human body. Hello? Law enforcement. <laughs> we so believe you, but Jason. I have I have had a couple of similar things where there was a dead animal <laughs> that I had to take care of. Oh, um, the in both senses of the word of I found a dead animal or I caused a dead animal uh, that rat in my backyard. What I'm saying is. <laughs> What I'm saying is, oh, I felt dear. that feeling when they were do- doing this, which is like, this is horrific, but it is my job to do this, and they told me we should do this. And so they're shaking the bag, and they can feel, and they can see the shapes of the person's body yeah. as they shake mm-hmm. the bag until it breaks up into little bits. And what's what's great about that scene is, not only is it horrifying, for all of those reasons, but that at the end, they basically radio back to Earth, and, and uh, I, I think Alma says this to her husband, she's like... Um, in their se- I think it might even be there in their secret back channel, which gets found out and isn't yeah. that secret. She's like, you can't, you, we need an alternative to the bag. The bag is not going to make it. The bag's not going to work, man. We can't do that again. It's great. And he was like, I don't understand. What do you mean? How, how did it go wrong? And it's like, dude. Because you can see the body break. breaking <laughs> into pieces of the person you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, and, and because they're, they're, body is gonna stay solid it's not moving and then it's yeah i just i i can't get oh, that fish in i mean having having it spent time you. having spent time in in actual morgues and dealt with some things that i'm not going to go into here hmm. thank and, you 
but but i but i have a strong stomach for that in fiction and and even this was like oh oh no it's, no it's harrowing, no no it? stop 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 talking about it so you know what happens is they consign the, yeah. the the other character who dies they just consign their body to the deep and release them into space and it slams into their antenna and breaks their connection to earth so <laughs> maybe yeah. the bag wasn't so bad after all Oops. i guess I, uh, Oops. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's. I mean, this is so okay. I love a good um, Mission to Mars kind of story. Basically, like an Apollo 13 thing where the, uh, you know, it is smart people in a super high stakes situation and things go wrong, but they need to keep cool heads and figure out how to solve the problems and work through it. Uh, all of that happens in the, this book, which is one of the reasons I really like it. Um, it is it is that there is lots else going on here. We haven't even talked about the fact that there's a, a South African white supremacist on one of the two crews right. here, and they have to deal with that. And the that that uh, Elma's crew is sort of the uh, the multicultural crew of people who the South Africans won't don't want on their spaceship, and that there's this kind of like horrendous divide that ends up they have to kind of come together because people start dying. Um, that, so there's lots of issues with that. Um, I also want to mention that there's a character who they have essentially no words for it, but a character who is transgender, mm-hmm. who is a woman who yeah. at first opportunity cuts her hair and wants to be called by a very specific name. And it's very clear as a, as a modern reader, like, I know what's happening here, but they are not they don't understand this yet, but it's very clear that that's, no. wh- that's who that character is. And that's kind of a, another thing that's going on. So there's a, you know, we don't have quite the cultural dynamics of the first book, but between the two crews and as they, as they mix back and forth at various points under stress, you do get a cultural dynamic. It's just a different kind because there's the small crew. You know, one of the other things I thought was really interesting about the book, the second book, we talked a little bit about the food in the first book, but the food becomes such an interesting um, point of sort of focus mm. in the second book, yes. um, in part because yeah. they're growing their own food. And I was, I guess I was surprised that they were cooking, you know, and generally um, sort of household tasks become an issue in right. this book, which the I thought was really... The kitchen is like a, a yeah. big setting and character in this, and lots of things happen while people are cooking. Yeah, well, uh, but then also like the assignment of work where mm-hmm. um, the characters who are either black or brown are getting assigned more of the cleaning roles, whereas yep. other characters are more maintenance focused um, and sort of the, the the biases and bigotry and racism that's happening there. But I but just generally, I, I guess I didn't expect that they would have a kitchen, that they would get to cook on their way to Mars, that um, right. that it wouldn't just right. all be kind of freeze-dried and packaged yeah, tang food. and astronaut ice cream yeah. and stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so reading her descriptions of the things that Elma is able to work out from the weird assortment of ingredients and baking at um, reduced gravity and all that was really fascinating to me. Yeah, I thought that was I thought that was really fun, and I like that, and I, I do like that there are lots of issues with the crew composition and how people are being assigned that get that get addressed. Um, I also like the fact that Elma's on the crew. Like one of the ways that this book starts and is super awkward is she's inserted on the crew kind of for 
you know, optic reasons, right? For PR reasons. And she's an incredibly capable person, but she's not being added to the crew for the right reasons. And somebody else loses a spot because of it. And that's, um, so she's not, she's kind of on the outside of this crew from the very beginning, which again, I I would say like, it's also the, uh, the Apollo 13 move, right? Where at the last minute, one of the, one of the people gets pulled and is replaced by somebody who they don't know as well. And there's some tension there in the movie more than in reality with Apollo 13. But I, I, I like that, you know, Elma, Elma is never comfortable <laughs> and she's mm-hmm. put in an uncomfortable position with this group from the very beginning. And there's also the whole I, thought process of whether she actually, because of course she does want to go to Mars, like that's without a doubt, but the whole idea of if she wants to go and be away from her husband that long and not have a child, because mm-hmm. that's a, a conversation that they have to actually be thinking about because of the length of the trip and all of these things in place and that i thought was very smoothly placed in the conversation it didn't become this huge gigantic well the woman must stay home with the child like type of a a thing and it was just like this is going to let's add a dash of this in there as well well i think it is someone who has had that conversation for different reasons it was also like a very real thing like yes. that that whole you know you put it you put it off and you put it off and then it's like okay well i guess, I guess we're gonna actually talk about this like it's time we can't put it off anymore so what are we gonna do yeah it's uh well and, and of course she's come around to the idea that they're going to have kids because she's it's it's that it's that really i think realistic idea that so much of those those life decisions can be made based on context of where you are in life and she is going to space right and then she's not going to go to mars and so she's like well the the on the bright side i can have kids and then they're like you're back on the mission she's like okay now i have to not I, now I have to choose to not have a family, which is mm-hmm. different than it was before because I came all the way around right. and now you're making me go back. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's it's so good. These books are so good. They are. Yeah. They, they, so good. they have depth. They have good characters. They have lots of fun interactions. There's adventure. There's horrifying things that happen with the bag. <laughs> and, it, you know, it, it is like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I it has been a long time since that I have ripped through two books and loved them so much and have felt like they hit all the notes like i don't even know what to criticize honestly we do a lot of like you you got to criticize the thing you love i'm not sure what i can criticize about these books because there aren't more right right? now yeah Yeah. exactly that's the thing i was surprised when they first announced them i mean i I loved the story so i was really happy to see that she was going to do more and then i was surprised that they were going to be releasing two of them within five weeks and once I finished the second one, I was like, where's the third one? Where's the third one? And then they announced yes. there are two more coming in a year and two years. I'm like, no. Yeah. 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 Too long. Yeah. It me, is. I, me want fix now. I get the feeling because it's funny because when I I was uh, afraid that this was going to be like the blackout all clear Connie Willis thing where she wrote mm. one long book and they just cut it in two and sold it as two separate books over and released them a few months apart. And that's not what happened here. I would not be surprised if these books were written together 
as mm-hmm. as a as a uh, you know book one book two of one novel kind of thing the way they were structured and that they decided to release them as two books because they do feel self-contained the story continues but there is a time gap there is a satisfying conclusion to book one that doesn't make you you know force you to read book two um but I wonder if that's the reason, because it is unusual to see them both come out uh, in such short order, but I'm very happy that they did. Very happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want to wait oh, another yeah. year for Fate of Sky. No, no, no. no I, wanted, yeah. I wanted it immediately upon finishing Calculating Stars, and I had to wait like a, two months, which is very funny, because how long I've been waiting for the next uh, Game of Thrones book. <laughs> it's, it's Twelve years. years. It's many years Whole now. Life. Many, many years. <laughs> uh, but uh, yes, I would like more of this. And she is Game she of Thrones a, book is coming. She signed a new. Uh, she signed a new contract, and there are many books coming, including uh, books uh, in this universe. One parallel uh, to what happens in the Faded Sky, and one that f- picks up after the Faded Sky uh, on Mars. So Mary Robinette Kowal is going to be very busy with these books, and good for her because they are they are really great uh and good, good for, for all of us that's right. yeah. to enjoy all them. of us we all agree i love the cover art it's, yeah that's really good good design if you put the two books side by side together the equations in the background connect yep it's really cool yep that is yep. the advantage of having two books coming out one summer is that you can design everything for both books together instead of just one and then hope that whoever is designing books in two years does design something similar yeah, that's so good. Okay, um, before we go, one of the things I like to do on the book club is ask everybody if they've read anything recently. This is what are you reading? If have you read anything recently that you'd like to recommend? Now, again, you should all listen to the recently read podcast that's now on the Incomparable, where you'll hear all sorts of things that we've read recently. But uh, th- I like this as a, a way to find new books to read and uh, things that people like that they've been reading. So I will go around and ask everybody if there's something. Uh, one or two things that they've been reading that they would like to recommend. And let's start with Aline. Oh, oh, I'm pulling up Goodreads. Okay, so, um, well, I'm rereading the Arcadia Project, the first two books right now, because I started the third and didn't remember what was happening. Yeah, I, that, that, was my, I, that was the most recently released, recently read. I talked about uh, imposter syndrome. And the first alert that I gave to everybody is, if you don't remember what happened in the first two, you should really bone up on that before you start book three, because it really requires you to remember everything that happened in the first two books. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good, um, it's really good. It, they're, they're really good. And um, so I, I read the calculating stars and then I was like, I need, I need more of her books. And so I think I've read all of her books now. <laughs> so uh, the glamorous <laughs> series, which is that kind of uh, English magic renaissance, not renaissance, but the English magic series. I was say um, it's like, would you say it's like Jane Austen with magic kind of? Yes, it yeah, is. It, how it, I it always was, describe them. Yeah. It was intentionally modeled after Jane Austen. So, um, which I have not actually read. Um, but yeah, so, um, there are five of those. They're, they're, they're good. They're also easy reads. Um, and then I'm actually reading a series that starts with the book. Um, hang on. My, I think it's My Life is a White Trash Zombie, which, um, is not a book. I, I got it for like two bucks or three bucks on sale for Kindle or something and was like, oh, I'll get to it eventually. Um, I really liked it a lot. I think that there's, there's some interesting things. I mean, it's, 
basically a girl in Louisiana, um, girl, a young woman in Louisiana who is turned into a zombie. And, um, but she's like lower income, didn't graduate from high school. And so it's talking about, um, not only is it, you know, an easy, good read but it also it talks about like cycles of abuse that people get in and you know those things like why didn't she just leave it it kind of addresses those kinds of things being in a lower socioeconomic status um those kinds of things are addressed in a not like heavy-handed way and i really like that so i've read the first two of those and i'm kind of waiting for the next one to come to me from the library but um i was really surprised i didn't think i'd like it just based on the title but it they're pretty good nice uh, David, what are you reading? I, I just read a book by Catherine Valente, who uh, I think Serenity put me onto her some time ago with the book Radiance. And she has a whole bunch of interesting different books. She writes lots of different things. And she her, her latest is a book called Space Opera, which is far more in a Douglas Adams vein than I would have expected. It's basically about... What if Earth were discovered by the rest of the galaxy and entered, without their knowledge, into an intergalactic version of the Eurovision singing contest? <laughs> and if uh, if the Earth does not do well, they will be destroyed. Mm. And so, yeah, it's it's just space Eurovision. That's brilliant. And so it's a lot of fun. And so I just read that. And I'm currently reading a book called Hope Never Dies by Andrew Schaefer, which is I guess you could say it's an alternate timeline in which the uh, former president of the United States, Barack Obama, and Vice President Joe Biden are off solving mysteries. It's a little bit <laughs> sure. Hardy Boys. It's a little bit uh, noir. It's 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 actually really well written. It's a really good uh, noir mystery that just happens to be narrated by Joe Biden, and and it also plays with a little bit of Holmes and Watson, and uh, it's. It's also sly fun. All right. Kathy Campbell, anything to recommend? Oh, yes. So I am currently on book seven of, well, there's nine books out now with two more coming next year of um, a series uh, by Catherine Grant. And they are, she calls them the Alexandra Mallory Psychological Suspense Novels. Um. And it's basically this, the main character is um, kind of a Dexter type character. And, she, but she basically murders men who do bad things to women. Um, and each book has a different thing. And it's much more delightful than you would imagine, uh, just by those words. So I am really enjoying those and kind of the, the way that they're written and the, the way the stories flow and all of that. Um, and then I am also, uh, currently rereading in the, uh, Bodice Ripper romance side of things, the Psy Changeling series by Nalini Singh, um, with all sorts of like kind of a mental type race with, um, animal shifters and humans. And it's just delightful, lighthearted fun all right and marisa what have you read lately that you'd like to recommend well um just over the weekend i finally read a long way to a small angry planet which i know you guys have <gasps> oh, talked yeah. about yeah. which was really great um Yay. 
And so I've, I read the second book, but I hadn't read the first one. And then the third one just came out recently. So I figured I'd go back to number one and then pick up with number three. Um, and I just recently picked up at the library, um, Murder at the 42nd Street Library. And um, there are a couple of, I don't think it's a very extensive series, but it's uh, about a murder at the New York City um, 42nd Street Library, which is kind of fun. And um, the main character is the curator of the uh, real crime reading room and so he's really into figuring these things out and um and then a murder happens on his own like doorstep and so um if you like murder and libraries it's sort of the perfect combination of those things um and then the only other thing i feel like that was worth mentioning um a while back i tumbled into the um deborah harkness um all souls trilogy world and there was a new one that came out just recently um and it was good but it you know if you like those kind of witches and vampires um it like the first three that trilogy really hold together and then this one wasn't quite as satisfying but but still good if you've invested in that world all right and for me i have let's see i finished european travel for the monstrous gentlewoman which is the sequel to theodora goss's strange case of the alchemist's daughter it basically just picks up where that one left off and then continues for a while and is if you like the first one, you will like this one because it's just like the book continues. Like that book, imagine that book was more than twice as long as it was. And that is what happens. They <laughs> mm-hmm. continue to tell stories. There are more characters. There are yet, believe it or not, yes, these mad scientists in Europe have created other monsters out of uh, women and girls. And you end up with this pretty amazing uh, sort of essentially like superhero team of various women who uh and also sherlock holmes is in it although not as much and there's like mysteries on trains traveling on the literally on the orient express traveling through through europe it's a lot of fun (laughs) i enjoy those uh i enjoy both of those books uh and it's just it's more of the the same kind of fun except this time happening mostly in uh, a, a couple different european capitals and a spooky castle and if you ask is dracula <laughs> in castle, it castle, the answer castle, is castle. yes dracula yes. is in it um <laughs> so there's also good audiobooks oh if, interesting yeah, all just, right yeah um i read imposter syndrome and i thought it was really good but aline's absolutely right you gotta you gotta study up on what happened in the first two books i would love to see another book by michelle baker with those characters that is a little more self-contained and not about the world itself because i really enjoyed it when the main character was just kind of solving a mystery um i I, I enjoy the fact that the the series very rapidly starts interrogating its own premise. It's actually pretty awesome. Like all those things you assume about fairies and magic and all that, we're going to question all of them immediately and then upset everything. And that what happens in the second book then leads into the third book where there's even more of that. Um, I would love another noir, uh, fairy noir and detective story though, because I think that the main character in that series is a fascinating uh, kind of semi-broken uh, person who is trying to do the best she can and uh and like that's those are the best noir detectives anyway uh Mm. and i'm gonna say the other book that i wanted to mention oh i read kim stanley robinson's red moon which isn't out yet but it'll be out in a couple of weeks i got set a pre uh preview version of that um i am on the record as not really liking most of kim stanley robinson's stuff recently um (laughs) i enjoyed it it's not the weightiest thing it's a little bit like uh, Kim Stanley Robinson read um, 
uh, what is it though was it the wolf moon series where um where uh ian mcdonald wanted to do a uh uh like a a, a big space opera mass appeal kind of adventure um it's a little it's a little like that because it is it is even more of a quick read fun story than his uh new york uh book was that we read last year um but it's fun it's set on the moon it's uh, mostly chinese uh characters and there's a couple american characters and uh it is an, a rollicking adventure story set on the moon basically and earth too but mostly the moon uh and then my uh my thing for for uh nerds to turn out <laughs> tune out at this part but just for those who enjoy uh the sports as well i'm really enjoying a book called the shift the Next Evolution in Baseball Thinking by Russell Carlton. What's interesting about it is that he is a trained psychologist, and it is a fascinating kind of post... It's a very modern, post-Moneyball modern view of baseball, how you need to take statistics into account, but you also have to understand that human beings play the game, and the more we understand about the people who play the game, the uh, more effective you can make a baseball team. And I, I, I think I, I think it's interesting that we've reached the point where the numbers have won to the point where people who are understanding the numbers can now feel free to come out of the shadows and say, let's also talk about the humans. Because the fact is that the players aren't numbers, they are people, and that doesn't mean that the numbers don't mean something, but it also means that, you, you know, if you don't feed your players healthy food, they're not going to play well. That's anyway, it's it's really good. And there's he tells a lot of interesting anecdotes along the way. It's kind of a refreshing angle for a baseball book that I don't usually get. So you you all can just rush out and read the shit. I'm, I know you I'm love. already writing it down. <laughs> love love the baseball books, but there it is. Can I, can I mention I one more really quick? Yes, yes, okay. For the second round, it's <laughs> a <Elise laughs> <Yeah, you're> pick. <laughs> <laughs> I just I wanted I wanted to mention um you were talking about nonfiction. I read so little nonfiction that I forgot I've read a nonfiction book lately, which was Ra- the Radium oh, Girls. Yes. Um good book. Which um, I yelled bad words a lot. Um, this was another one I listened to. So I was walking around the apartment and like screaming at the audiobook. Um, it talks about the women and often girls, teenagers who, um, like in the early, in the 19 teens, 1920s into even the 1970s, um, women and girls were hired to paint the luminous stuff on dials. So clock faces and, um, Air, um, playing instruments and that kind of thing. And, um, they initially originally painted it with radium, which is radioactive. And, um, they've largely been forgotten kind of by history. And so I want to give it a shout out because really without these women and girls who were doing this work, we probably wouldn't have, you know, won world wars and that kind of stuff because, you know, pilots needed to see instrumentation at night. Um, but they died horribly they died very horribly um and so it's it's a very interesting book it is a little bit graphic um in terms of like what happens when you get this particular type of radiation poisoning well basically it goes into your bones and they start to disintegrate um so there's kind of that but um i i just you know if you're at, if you're at all interested i think that it's a good way to kind of honor their memory and um and not forget them all right 
bonus pick right there. <laughs> All right, and and that brings us to the end of this episode of The Incomparable. Go read these books by Mary Robinette Kowal. Read all of her books, quite frankly, but definitely read these. They are very good. I would like to thank my guests for being here on this episode of The Book Club. Aline Sims, thank you, including your bonus pick for being here. <laughs> thank you. David J. Lore, thank you. Thank you for having me. I am ready to launch now. That's not a metaphor, by the way. <laughs> Too much information. Not a metaphor. <laughs> Kathy Campbell, thank you. <laughs> And Marisa McClellan, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And uh, sorry, Kathy. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode of The Incomparable. It's all about books. We're just talking about books. We don't know. We'll see you next time. 